The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Father, as we go to the Word together, it's our desire to see it, to know it, to understand it, and then to see it fulfilled in our lives. And as we look at your design, the great design that you've given us, Father, we're grateful for that. Father, by your grace, we're here. By your mercy, we're here. By your goodness, we're here. And I pray for each person here, Father, single, single young adults, single older adults, those of us who are married, those of us who have been married and are struggling right now in divorce situations, God, would you use your word to bless, challenge, encourage, and change us, every one of us, in the name of Jesus, amen. So our culture is filled with questions about sexuality. Dave Tate, how many of you were here last week? Dave, don't you think, Dave did a marvelous job with that. I mean, a marvelous job. Bev and I were coming back. Uh, I had the privilege to go with my son. He said, hey, Dad, we've always talked about going to spring training together. Let's go see the Astros. So we were in Florida last weekend having a great time together. And one of the great things, as you continue to pray, I have zero pain. I still have the same energy level I've always had, and that is God's grace. So we went on this. Yeah. So... So we went on this trip together, and on the way back, Bev and I listened to, she wasn't with us, we drove from Houston to Temple and uh, listened to that message, and it was phenomenal. As he talked about some of the burning issues in our culture, you can go back and listen to it, go to our Facebook page or the TBC website, and it's there for you. He dealt with issues like gender issues, abuse issues, trafficking issues, sex slavery issues, same-sex attractions, pornography, all of that from a loving biblical view. And that's what we want. We want to be loving in our culture. We want to speak the truth of God's word and we want to embrace everyone around us. And so that's our desire more than anything else to see what God's design and God's desire is for each of us in the area of sexuality. God has spoken clearly about this. So when you're the senior pastor, the oldest guy on staff, you let the young guys do sexuality broken and you do it repaired, right? So I've got, the, I've got the joy of looking at Song of Solomon with you and we're gonna get there actually a few minutes into the message. Our focus this morning is what is God's design for sex? How do we honor him in a sexual relationship? How do we honor him? And that's what we're gonna look at in God's word together. Sex, is it a gift to be enjoyed? or a duty to be endured? Is it a uh, thankless chore or a passionate expression of love in your home? I mean, those are the questions before us. Sex is complex, yet it's simple. It's beautiful, yet it's potentially destructive. And as we look at this great gift that God has given us, the Bible speaks about it frankly, and the Bible speaks about it often. I love what Mark Driscoll says in one of his books. He says, in the kingdom culture, in our kingdom culture, the marriage covenant is sacred and the marriage bed essential. Amen? Three of you agreed with that. <laughs> okay, this is going to be interactive, guys. We're going to talk back and forth today, okay? In the kingdom culture, the marriage covenant is sacred. The marriage bed is sensual. Amen. Amen. I mean, that's what we believe, isn't it? The marriage covenant is something that's sacred between a husband and wife. It's something we commit to, but the marriage bed is sensual. That's the way God desires for us to respond as spouses. We speak frankly, but not crassly. In fact, pray for me that I will be frank, but not crass today. I, I don't want sexual innuendos and jokes coming from my mouth, but I want to speak the truth in love. 
We speak frankly, but not crassly about sexuality because if our people do not get their information from the living waters of scriptures, their thirst will compel them to drink from the sewer of pornography and perversion. I would rather my kids hear about a sexual relationship from God's word and from the pulpits of churches that teach God's word than learning about it online or in the schoolyard. And God's word speaks about it often. And we at TBC are not afraid to speak about what God's word speaks about. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a look at what the word says. There are a lot of confusing voices out there. They trumpet their views on sex. But honestly, my friends, there's only one voice that matters. It's the voice of God. The one who has made us, the one who's given us this great gift to enjoy together. So what is God's design for sex? What's his design? What, what, what does he think about the sexual relationship? I mean, what does God think about sex? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So you say, I can't believe we're doing this in church. We are. So get ready. Okay, so for those of you that are obsessive, compulsive, fill in the blankers. When I preach, you get an outline, they're filling the blanks. How many of you are obsessive, compulsive about filling those in? Bunch of you. You email me when you don't get one of the points and you can actually go online and get those. They're there now, okay, every time. So I'm going to give you the answers before I actually teach the scriptures. How's that? Three Ps, okay? You ready? The first three blanks are Ps. God has given us the gift of sex for procreation, pleasure, and protection, okay? I'm going to give you a chance to write it down if you're taking notes. He's given us the gift of sex for procreation. I'm going to tell you what that means in a minute if you don't know what it means. Procreation, he's in favor of creation. Procreation, procreation, that's having little ones. Secondly, pleasure pleasure. Thirdly, protection. So let's parse those out and take a look at those together. What does God think about sex? First of all, he says, I give you the gift of sex that you might bear fruit. That's procreation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is perhaps the most obeyed commandment in the scriptures at Temple Bible Church. I mean, in 37 and a half years, I have seen hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of babies born here. And we say, to God be the glory, great things he's done. We want to be about producing the next generation. I have the joy after all these years to watch these youngsters grow up. I've done weddings of people who I did weddings for. I'm doing like second generation and almost third generation weddings. And the Lord keeps me around a few more years, then I'll be doing third generation weddings. It's a great joy to see. Many of the young men who serve as uh, deacons right now are young men who grew up in this church, who were born in this church, and now it's come full circle where they are serving Christ in the church that they grew up in. And I say, what a marvelous thing to see what God has done. So God formed Adam out of the dust. He created Eve from Adam's rib, and he could have continued the reproductive process that way or chosen any option he desired. We could be passing wax on Q-tips for reproduction. But God had a much greater and grander plan, amen? I mean, it's a much greater and grander plan that God designed for us in the sexual relationship to bring about the joy of creation. And and so he allows us to, to participate in this creative process. I mean, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing what God has given us the privilege to be a part of and what he has designed. The gift of sex gives us the unspeakable privilege of being part of God's wondrously creative creation process. Remember when your first baby was born? Ladies, you remember that? Men, you remember that? It was a tough labor for us, wasn't it, guys? I mean, Bev, I in labor 20 plus hours, is that right? Sarah, where Sarah's sitting next to, she was our firstborn. She's sitting next to Bev down here. She didn't want to come out. 
I mean, I mean, she, it's, Bev was in labor. Bev was a little thing. She weighed eight pounds, six ounces, I think it was. Is that right? Yeah, and so, I mean, here, here I mean, it, it was a hard labor for both of us. I mean, I was having a tough time the whole time coaching her. In fact, I remember uh, they had a fetal monitor and the monitor popped. I hadn't eaten all day. I, that's a bad thing when I don't eat all day already. And uh, all of a sudden I heard something pop and that room began to spin around. And the last thing I heard a nurse say was, it's always the biggest ones that go down. <laughs> So after all that labor, here comes Sarah, March 14th, 1979. Two years later, Daniel, May 12th, 1981. And you remember holding that baby for the first time? I mean, your heart just skips a beat. Your math, I didn't put Sam on and say, oh, we're gonna give her back, we don't want her. It was just the opposite, man. You fell in love from the moment you looked into those little eyes. I mean, you're madly in love with that baby that ladies has caused you all kinds. She, she made you crave cheese enchiladas at midnight, and yet you loved her anyway. And there's this great joy of participating in God's creation, of seeing that happen. And that's the desire God wants for us. Now, I know this is hard for some. You wanted babies, and babies never came. I, 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 I commend you for being here. I commend you for loving the children in this church and for some of you, you've adopted, you, you, you've, you, you've fostered, you, you've filled the, your arms and you, you fill them with love for others. And when it comes to the creation process, man, as parents, as grandparents, speak the truth of what God does into the lives of your kids, how, how this process works. It's a great privilege to explain God's creative creation to the next generation because we don't want them hearing this on, online or in the school year. We want them hearing from us. One author writes, on the way back from a Cub Scout meeting, my grandson was sitting in the front seat with my son. I was in the back seat listening to their conversation. My son was 32, his son was about six or seven, and uh, I'm in the back seat as the grandpa. Then all of a sudden I heard my grandson ask my son, Dad, I know babies, just out of the blue, he says, I know babies come from mommy's tummies, but how do they get there in the first place? I was chuckling in the back seat as I saw my son hemming and hawing for a while without saying anything. Finally, my six-year-old grandson said, Dad, you don't have to make something up. It's okay if you don't know the answer to that. <laughs> you know, let them know the wondrous process of what God does when it's age-appropriate. Let them hear the beauty of God's creation, His creative plan. So God has given us the sexual relationship for procreation. He's also given it to us for pleasure. Given it to us for pleasure. This is what God desires. God is saying, enjoy, enjoy the intimacy between a husband and wife. It's not endure, but enjoy. That's what God wants. He wants you to enjoy a physical relationship with the spouse that he's given you. God has designed us through sexual intimacy where two become one. He says in Genesis, for this cause a man shall leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and the two become one. So here's one of the big battles when you're having sex outside of marriage. You're having it premaritally as a young person. You're having it as an adult with somebody you're not married to. You may have a spouse and you're out there cheating on that spouse, or maybe you've been in a marriage and you're single now and, and you're out there having a sex relationship. The problem is you become one. It's like two pieces of paper being glued together and it become inseparable. And so you get involved in this premarital relationship. I'm convinced of this, premarital sex or extramarital sex, it either prolongs a bad relationship or it harms a good relationship. 
either prolongs a bad relationship or harms a good relationship. There's a young girl named Olivia. She went to see the doctor on campus and she was struggling with bulimia. And she began to talk to the physician and he began to question her about when it had started and the struggle had started about four months earlier. It was the second semester of her freshman year. As he began to query her about what was going on, he found out that she had a relationship with a young man and for the first time she'd become sexually involved with someone in her life. And then he broke it off. He said, I'll never forget her statement to me. She said, why doc? Why do you tell us how to protect our bodies from STDs and pregnancy? But you don't tell us what this does to our heart. You don't tell us what it does to our heart. You see, when you become glued together to someone, a sexual relationship, it's hard to break that paper apart without tearing it apart. And that's what happens. Premarital sex either prolongs a bad relationship or it brings shame and guilt to a good relationship. And so to my brothers and sisters in Christ out there who are single or involved with somebody you shouldn't be involved with, let me encourage you, first of all, to repent. That means to turn away from Confess. You go to that young lady or young man you're dating and say, I am so sorry I've initiated this. I am a follower of Christ. Would you forgive me? And then you honor the Savior with your life. And you walk with him. In Galatians 5, it says, says, um, if you walk in the Spirit, you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. In the first three desires of the flesh, you can chase this down. Galatians 5, 12 and following. The first three desires of the flesh are issues of immorality. So you say, Pastor Gary, how do we get there? A transformed heart produces changed behavior. It's a transformed, it's a heart that knows Jesus, that is filled with the Spirit of God, that desires to walk with God, that honors God in these types of relationships. And so if you want to be pure, it starts off, and I'm going to talk about this at another point, it starts off with a walk with Christ. He's given us this for pleasure. You're saying, really, the Bible says that? Yeah, it says that. It says that. Guys, if you want to become a better lover, men, I'm going to talk to you first. If you want to become a, you want to improve your sex life, you don't go buy hormones online and all that kind of stuff. You, you don't go to the gym and become this buffed animal and you don't preen in front of the mirror. Your wife ain't going to look at you when you come back to the gym and say, you hunk a hunk of burning love. I want you right now. <laughs> Doesn't happen that way. You want to become a better lover? You communicate with her. You talk to her. You listen to her. You become romantic with her. I want every man in here to say romance with me. Romance. I'm watching you one more time. Romance. Some of you guys have no idea what that word means. Uh, and, 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 and then you, you spoil her. One of Bev and I, in the last six years since I was uh, diagnosed with this disease, we've said one of our, our goals in life is to outspoil one another. We should have been doing that our whole marriage, actually. But here's the reality. That's the great thing you can do. You, you want to become a great lover of men? That's what you do. It's not about your physical proudness. It's all about your heart because that's what your woman wants from her. And women, you become responsive to that man that God's given you. Too often it becomes a battle rather than a thing of pleasure. Solomon talks about it should be a thing of pleasure. Now, uh, yeah, in, in Proverbs chapter 5. He says, drink water from your own sister and running water from your own well. He's saying, don't go out and cheat. That's what he's saying. Drink water from your own cistern. 
You, you don't go out in the streets. Your springs shouldn't overflow in the streets. Your streams of water shouldn't go to public squares. Let these be yours alone. Never share these things with, with strangers. He says, well, when you are married, you share yourself only with your bride. You have an intense relationship with your husband, with your wife, and no one else. You don't go and share it somewhere else. In fact, may the fountain, may your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. The word intoxicated, you be drunk with her love. And some of you say, and that's in the Bible? It's there. I'm not making this up. Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. Take a look at it. It says, you be satisfied with her. You be intoxicated with her. You be drunk with love with one another. God has designed the sexual relationship to be that which brings great pleasure within marriage. Now, I'm not talking to those who are physically unable. I recognize things happen. We age, things happen. But those that are physically able, God's very clear about it. You know, the question I'm asked a lot of times in counseling is, Pastor Gary, why has God made us so different in this area? I mean, are you wired differently in this area? Your home, my hand goes up. Anybody else? Just me. Are you wired differently from your spouse in the area of sexuality? Would you raise your hand if that is the case? I mean, for some of you, I guess you're just, well, I'm not, I'm not going to get crass. We're wired differently. Here's one guy's story about how they're wired differently. I used this uh, several years ago in another, as an illustration. One evening last week, my wife and I were getting into bed. Well, the passion started to heat up, and she eventually says to me, I don't feel like it. I just want you to hold me. I said, what? She says the words I and every husband on the planet dread to hear. She explains to me I'm not in tune with her emotional needs as a woman, and therefore it's hard to give to her herself physically to me. I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I remember your birthday this year. I bought you chocolates on Valentine's, even though it was six months ago. I finally realized nothing was going to happen that night, so I went to bed days confused and totally unfulfilled. The next day, we went shopping at a big unnamed department store that I call Neiman Markup. I walked around while she tried on three very expensive outfits. She couldn't decide which one to take, so I looked at her and said, take all three of them. She said she'd like to find shoes to go with them. They were $200 a pair. I say, which one? She said, all. I said, go for it. Then she went to the jewelry department. She wanted a tennis bracelet. She didn't even play tennis. <laughs> I think I threw her for a loop when I said it was okay. She was so excited, she looked at me and said, I'm ready to go to the cash register. I could hardly contain myself. I blurted out, no, honey, I don't feel like buying all this stuff right now. <laughs> you should have seen her face. It went completely blank. I said, really, honey, I just want you to hold this stuff right now. <laughs> just when I thought she was going to kill me, I added... You're just not in tune with my financial needs as a man. <laughs> he concludes, he says, I think it's be two weeks from now before I can open either one of my eyes. <laughs> you know, we laugh at that, but it's painfully true for a lot of people. Painfully true. God has created the physical relationship between a husband and wife for pleasure, to enjoy Finally, he's uh, created it for protection. We spent a lot of time talking about this a month ago. 
when I preached the first sermon and disconnect, second sermon disconnected, don't deprive one another except by mutual consent for a time so you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together lest Satan tempt you and you fall into sin because of lack of self-control. I'm, I'm not gonna say anything else about that except uh, for some of you, this is what your bedroom looks like. Apparently, I've done something to upset you, he tells her. And uh, here's the reality. Uh, for some of you, today needs to be day of correction, a day of repentance, a day of change, right? So let's go to Song of Solomon. You ready? You got your devices, got your phones, got your iPads, got your Bibles in your hands. I want you to, I'm gonna give you a little time to turn Song of Psalms. Go to Psalm in the middle of the Psalms, in the middle of the Bible, then keep going deeper into it. You go Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. The book Song of Solomon is rarely taught in churches. You know why? It'll make you blush. It's a song of, it's a, it's a, it's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to sexual love. The early fathers, they didn't, even, they didn't want to deal with it, so they said, well, this is a long extended metaphor about Christ and the church and Christ in Israel. It's not. It's about Solomon taking on his first wife. It's about uh, love between a husband and a wife. And so what makes a great lover? That's the question before us. Number one, radical purity in a culture of rampant impurity. If you want to be a great lover, it begins with radical purity in a culture of rampant impurity. Impurity. I'm going to start before we go to Song of Solomon in First Thessalonians chapter four. There it says, "As for other matters, brothers and sisters, be instructed how you live in order to please God as you are living." Now we ask you and urge you to do this more and more. He says, "You're living a life that pleases God," and then he says, "Let me give you a few more things to do along the way." Let me have you do this more and more. And then he talks about the very next two verses later, he says, it's God's will that you be sanctified, that is avoid sexual immorality. The words avoid sexual immorality are two words in the Greek language. They're the words, uh, meaning to avoid, and the word for sexual morality is pornea. Avoid pornea. And some of you say, well, God's just a cosmic killjoy. He just wants to put a damper on everything that is pleasurable, just the opposite. I just showed you where God says, I want you to have great pleasure in this act between a husband and a wife for as long as God gives it to you. And what God is saying is, I've got a better plan for you. I've got a better plan than for you to be out in the streets. I've got a better plan for you than than bedding down with man after man and woman after woman. I've got a better plan for you than infidelity and adultery. I've got a better plan for you, and that is that you enjoy a relationship with the person that God's given you. In fact, it goes on and says, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but he rejects God the very God who gave us the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you know what? We live this pure life, not because some pastor's calling us to it, not because a college pastor calls us to it, not not because we hear some podcast or listen on the radio, but we do it because God is holy and we want to be holy. The reason we walk in purity is all about a walk with him and a relationship with him. And the reason why you, my, all these college students over here, we just love you. And the reason you walk in purity is not because somebody says you can't, you shouldn't, you don't. God's saying, I've got the very best for you. You trust me for it. And I'll give you the greatest gift you can imagine with a husband and a wife. And so he's saying, I want you to enjoy this great gift. I want you to live a radically pure life in an age of rampant impurity. So Solomon turns to his bride-to-be, 
they're not married yet. They're moving towards the altar. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. He, say, he turns to all, all the courtiers that are with his bride to be with the princess. And he says, I, I'm instructing you ladies, don't awaken love until it's the right time. And the right time is when you have a spouse. In fact, he goes on and he says this about his wife, the Shulamite. He says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are spring enclosed. You are a sealed fountain. He looks at her and says, you have the gift of virginity to offer to me, and I am so grateful for it. So what if you've messed up? We're saying, Gary, that's the way I want to be. But as a man or as a woman, it's too late. There's something called secondary virginity. It's when you pledge yourself to that spouse or that, that person that you'll become engaged to. And you come to them and say, I'm so sorry I didn't save this for you. And then you have the opportunity to start fresh. Doesn't mean we go out and sin now. Scriptures say where sin abounds, grace abounds more. I mean, should we go on sinning? Paul says, make anoint that. May it never be. But he's saying, you save yourself. You will never apologize for your purity, my friends. To my young people over here, you will never apologize for your purity ever. But one day you may have to apologize for your impurity. So I call you to live a holy life before the Father, modeling to us, modeling to the world, modeling to one another. To my adults out here, same thing. It's no different to young, older adults. It's the same thing. We're to model purity because of the holiness of Christ and our desire to honor him. So Solomon goes on. And uh, I, I want you to look at chapter four, verse one with me. Now, the crowd is gone. They're alone at last. The wedding celebration is over. The knot has been tied. The laughter has died down. The silence of anticipated love lingers heavily in the air. It's their honeymoon. It's their first time to be together. You remember that day, gentlemen, ladies? September 4th, 1976. You remember, babe? We got married in the morning so we could get someplace as quickly as possible. <laughs> we did. We, we were headed to Florida. We only had three nights. I got us a hotel in Biloxi, Mississippi because it was the closest place to stop from Baton Rouge. How's that for true confessions? <laughs> we wanted to get there as quickly as we can to drink of what God has given us as a gift. And we did. We stopped there and it was, a, you know, the, the, the anticipation of marital bliss. Well, look what Solomon does. Chapter four, verse one. Here's the key. You want to be a great lover? Look at what he does. He, he, lavish, he, he, he speaks words of kindness and tenderness there. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Then drop down to verse seven. You're a beautiful altogether, my darling. Verse, verse 10. How beautiful is your love? Four times he calls her beautiful. Four times he calls her beautiful. Guys, I don't know about you. I want to be the one calling that woman right there beautiful and I do it all the time. I don't want some other dude walking up and say, hey, you're beautiful. I want her to hear that from my lips all the time. When's the last time you just looked at your bride and said, hey, you are beautiful and I'm so grateful for you. <clears throat> Here's a hint. This is a good time to do it. <laughs> I'm watching. You lean over and tell her. I'm watching. Hey, babe. I mean, there you go. I want those coming from my lips. I, the first pastor of women at Temple Bible Church was Nancy Winburner. If you've been here a long time, you remember Leroy and Nancy. And Leroy had a pet name for Nancy. It was beautiful. And so Leroy would always call her, hey, beautiful. Hey, beautiful. All he ever called her was beautiful. I never heard him call her anything else. 
And there was a time when Nancy and I were in the office and we were talking about something else and, and Leroy calls her and you can hear him on the other side of the phone, hey, beautiful. And after they hung up, I said, what's it like to hear that over and over? She said, Gary, after you hear that time and time again, you begin to believe it. And every woman goes, ah. Oh. <laughs> Nancy said, I believe it. He's called me that for 50 plus years. I believe it. Ladies, the street goes both ways. When's the last time you thank him for being the man he is? Same thing. And so he looks at her and he says, hey, you're beautiful. Four times he calls her beauty in here. Now, I've got to warn you, we're going to walk through the next verses. He starts at the top of her head and he just looks at her body and he pays her compliments. Here's my warning. Everything does not translate culturally, okay? <laughs> it doesn't translate culturally. Some of these things, guys, you don't want to say to your wife. It worked then. It doesn't work now. Look at what happens next. He looks at her and says, hey, babe, your hair is like a flock of goats. If I looked at Bev and said, your hair looks like a flock of goats, I'm on the couch tonight. Your hair looks like a flock of goats descended from Mount Gilead. Now, what's he saying? Well, Mount Gilead, as they're coming down, he sees the, 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 the beautiful mane of these goats in, in, in the wind. And, and so if you understand it culturally, he's saying, I see your hair and it's a thing of beauty, but you go home tonight and tell your wife, hey, babe, your hair looks like a flock of goats. It's probably not gonna be a good day for you, okay? It doesn't all translate culturally here, but that's the way he sees her. He's paying her compliments. He's starting to the top of her head, and now he moves down. The next verse doesn't work in our culture either. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them have twins. Not one of them is lost. <laughs> Basically, in our culture, he's saying you're not from Arkansas. That's what he's saying. <laughs> I've already got 50 messages from Arkansas today, okay? It's like, okay, I'm just joking, guys. I'm just uh, lighting up, okay? I'm not going to look at Bev tonight and say, hey, let me inspect your teeth. Gosh, you got them all, babe. You're wonderful. <laughs> That's not going to be a good night either. I'm going to tell you that. But, but he, I mean, some of this doesn't translate, okay? But it, he's paying a comedy. He starts with her hair, then he goes to her teeth, and then he looks at her lips. He says, your lips are like a scarlet thread. That's their outline, their shape. Your mouth is lovely. I mean, just walking out, your temples are like a slice of pomegranate beneath your veil. Now, who knows what a slice of pomegranate looks like? This is what, I had to go look it up. This is what it looks like. <laughs> we don't do pomegranates at our house. Uh, we just don't. What he's saying is, hey, your complexion's beautiful. Looks like a pomegranate. And uh, he's talking about her complexion, her beauty. And so... You know, you better know what a pomegranate looks like before you, it looks like. I'm not going to tell Bev she looks like a piece of fruit. That's not going to work either. Look at the next verse. Your neck is like the Tower of David. It's built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields. All the round shields are the mighty men. He's not saying you look like a giraffe. That's not what he's saying here, okay? This is what the Tower of David looks like. Okay, if you come with us to Israel, this is what the Tower of David looks like. It's a thing that is stately. It's a thing of integrity. It's a thing of character. And he talks about these shields. You know why he talks about that? Because they took all the armor and they placed it within the Tower of David. If you've been with us to Israel, we've gone into the Tower of David. It's where the sound and light show is outside, inside the old city. And so he's saying, you're stately. You're majestic. You are like the Tower of David. You're a place of security. It's where we hide our greatest treasure, our weaponry. 
And so he's looking at her from the top down and he's saying, what a beautiful thing you are. And then, then he goes and he says in verse five, your two breasts are like two fawns, they're twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. And he's saying they're, they're soft, they're tender, they're beautiful. Till the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, I will go to my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. And he's looking at his bride and he's saying, what a gift you are. What a gift you are. You're a thing of great beauty to me. And from the top of your head to the tip of your toes, you're more than I can imagine. And so he speaks these words of kind tenderness to her. He lavishes her with praise. And guys, I mean, the need for us to do that to our wives and vice versa is great. One woman was sitting in the back porch and the phone rang and she answered it and she had a long conversation with her sister. Then she came in and she told her husband, my sister's incredible. She's telling me that she's working with her husband to build a deck on back of their house this summer. She actually is surprising him. She took a woodworking class. She's making a rocking chair. And to his surprise, when the deck is finished, she's going to put the rocking chair that she made on on the new deck. This spring, I, I remember she took an, a, a, a course on exotic uh, cooking. When I talk to my sister, I just love hearing what she's doing. But to be honest with you, I feel so inadequate when I talk to her. After all, what do I make? And her husband looked at her and smiled. And he said, I tell you what you make. You make me happy. And every woman goes, ah. And every guy goes, I wish I had a thought of that. (laughs) I mean, really, think about that woman's heart. Hey, babe, maybe you don't build decks and rocking chairs, but you make me happy. Ladies, how would you respond to a man like that? How would you respond to that? And so you, you... He looks at this and he says, you're a thing of beauty. And then he lavishes praise with her. Look at verse seven. You're altogether beautiful, my darling. There's no blemish in you. Come with me to Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me to Lebanon. Let's let's go on this honeymoon together. Look at verse nine. You've made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You've made my heart beat faster with a single glance of of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful you are, my love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of oils than all kinds of spices. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. He looks at her, and he lavishes praise on her. You make my heart beat faster. I'm going to tell you, after 42 years of marriage, I look at my bride, my heart beats faster. I'll never forget the first time my heart beat out of my... What'd you say? I'll never forget the first time I kissed Beth. Remember that? Where were we? power dorm. So I decided I'm going to be a young man who's respectful. I hadn't always been that way with the girls I dated. I'm now walking with Christ, honoring Christ. Bev and I met on a blind date. She was blind. I was the date. (laughs) It's the only way it was going to work, right? And so, so, so we, for three months, we went out. I don't know how many times, a bunch of times. And I didn't kiss her. And I'm going to tell you, if that didn't happen on the first date and before those times, that, that was like, okay, we're moving on to the next person. I wanted to kiss her every single night, but I waited three months. 
And uh, man, we kissed and there was fireworks in both of our lives. My heart beat fast, I'm gonna tell you. Me and I heard birds singing in the middle of the night. The sun was shining bright and there wasn't a sun, it was the moon. And it was like, I drove back to that dorm and I was on cloud nine. In fact, <laughs> we've got a thing going. So when I pass away, I'm gonna uh, hashtag meet me behind cloud nine uh, <laughs> in glory. So, but my heart still beats that way. I hope that for you. I, I, I treasure that for you. I, I treasure the joy of that for you. I, I treasure that you cherish that man God's given you, that woman God's given you. And he said, I looked at you, and when I looked at you, my heart began to beat out of my chest. And it's not that we don't have issues at times. Certainly we do. Nobody's perfect in this world. But then you realize the great joy, and here he is praising her. Now, sometimes we do the opposite. We don't praise the way we should praise. We end up in saying things we shouldn't say. You remember this couple? I'm going to bring them back every time I preach. <laughs> every time I preach. Well, he's a guy, he didn't know how to always speak kind things to his wife. So one day he looked and said, Ma, I finally figured something out. The reason Mayberry was so peaceful and quiet was because nobody ever got married. He said, you think about it. Andy, Aunt B, Barney, Floyd, Howard, Goober, Gomer, Sam, Ernest T. Bass, Helen, Thelma Lou, Clara, and Opie were all single. The only married person was Otis and he stayed drunk the whole time. <laughs> I bet he had a great night when he told her that, right? So then they prepare for passion and uh, then they enjoy the pleasure that God gave them. If you look at uh, verse 16 in chapter four, awake, O north wind, come wind of the south, make my garden breathe out fragrance. This is the Shulamite woman saying, I want my man. Let his spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. He's saying, she's saying, I desire my man. And then he turns and says, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered, they've consummated their marriage. I've gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey and I've drunk my wine and my, my, my milk. And then his, his admonition to us is, eat my friends, drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. God's approval and God's blessing to have a sensual love feast between a husband and a wife. That's what God did. He created this relationship for us to enjoy as a great gift with the spouse that he's given us. My favorite illustration in marriage, and if you've been at TBC, you've heard this a half a dozen times. Last time I used it, my notes was six years ago. But I think it captures everything I'm trying to say. And if you've been here, I apologize, bear with me. So there was a guy named Jim who always wanted an MG, a little MG convertible. And so he finally found one that needed to be repaired and he spent two years fixing up that MG. Two years of putting an engine in, two years of buffing it out, two years of getting it ready and finally it was running and he drove it around for several months and then finally his wife, his wife Beth, asked if she could take it for a spin. She had ridden with him numerous times and she had never gotten the courage to ask him if she could drive it. And she had to go to the post office. It'd be a quick trip, only about five blocks and come right back. And she was longing to drive it. And so he told her, sure, go ahead, have a great time. 
She came to the second intersection and she saw a blur coming out of the corner of her eye and the blur was a young boy on his bicycle and she knew she was going to hit him unless she did something so she swerved to miss him and when she swerved to miss him she hit a pickup truck coming in the opposite direction. She heard the crinkling of the metal and the glass that went everywhere. Her first thought was, I'm glad I'm okay and I can see the other guy is okay but Jim's going to kill me when I get home. And then she thought about it and said, no, he won't. He's not an angry man. He's a gentle man, but I hate to have to tell him what happened. So she sat on the curb waiting for the police officer to come. And when he came, it was a motorcycle policeman. And she saw the reflection of his boots as he came up. And he said, I need your driver's license insurance papers, ma'am. She said, I reached in my purse and gave him my wallet. And I went to the glove box. They gave him my driver's license out of my wallet and I went to the glove box and I opened it to grab the insurance papers and when I did I noticed there was an envelope wrapped around the insurance papers with my name on the outside and said Beth this is for you so I handed the officer insurance papers I opened the envelope with my name on the outside and it said this dear Beth if you're reading this you've probably just been in an accident (laughs) and the rest of it read this don't worry I pray that you're all right And remember, it's you and not that car that I love. And every woman goes, and every guy goes, I wish I'd have thought of that. (laughs) Let me drive this home. The cross is God's statement. Regardless of how much you've wrecked your life, remember, it's you that I love. It's you that I love. And so he wants us to experience that in marriage. And he says, I want you to experience that with me because the sexual relationship is a picture of the intimacy we can have with our Savior. Father, we thank you. We thank you for laughter and we thank you for truth. I thank you for purity, Father. There are many people here who have saved themselves, and I thank you for that. I I pray this morning is also a morning of conviction and confession and change for others that need to repent. And I pray today is a day of great joy for many. For many as they thank you for the great gift you've given them, the gift of sexuality, the gift of a relationship with one that they love. So, Father, to you be all glory and honor every single day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Bless you, my friends. See you next week.